Building trust is hard. And for us, you know, when we came in, we entered in the space at a time where particularly athletes didn't trust anyone, right? And rightly so, right? They had been wronged by their coaches, by people in, in positions of power and authority, by their entire governing bodies. And so when we opened, it was an uphill battle for us because, you know, we were really closely connected in people's minds to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the governing bodies that, you know, that had done some pretty shady things leading up to that point. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Juris Cologne is the chief executive officer of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, the nation's only nonprofit organization committed to ending all forms of abuse in sport. Before her center tenure, Juris served as national vice president of child and club safety for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, developing and leading the child safety policies and initiatives for over 1,100 U.S. Boys and Girls Clubs organizations and nearly 4,300 Boys and Girls Club locations. Juris also served as Executive Director of Prevention and Outreach for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, leading prevention and education programs related to child abduction and sexual exploitation and their delivery to children, families, and the public. An experienced child advocate who serves as an expert on issues related to child safety, Juris has led prevention and outreach initiatives with youth-serving organizations, serving families, educators, law enforcement, and diverse communities. She earned bachelor's degrees in criminal justice and Spanish from Virginia Commonwealth University. Juris, welcome to Chief Influencer. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm really excited to have this opportunity for folks to learn about the center, but also to talk about the important work that you've done across your career. One of the things that you know we could hear just in your bio is the various stakeholders that you've had to serve. And so that's one of the things I want to talk about is how you influence stakeholders that range from the public to, um, you know, a vast ar array of folks, especially from a new organization. But to get started, you know, Safe Sports mission is to put athletes' well-being first, above money and medals. And that was born out of a need for reform. Um, so I wondered if you could just start by telling us more about the organization, how it was founded, and, you know, the various stakeholders that you have to keep in mind in your role as CEO. Sure, happy to. So the Center for Safe Sport, we were opened in March of 2017. And to rewind time a little bit, um, that was just a few short months after Larry Nasser was put in jail. And so we were opened as an organization to really address 
what the nation was finding out that was happening in USA Gymnastics um, several years ago and really the organization that was built to do a couple of things, right? One, to really hold organizations and individuals accountable for their actions, particularly when it when it came to um, allegations of abuse um, and misconduct. Um, we also spend a lot of time trying to make sure that we don't ever get to that part, right? Making sure that one, we have the proper policies in place and proper rules in place, particularly organizations serving youth and athletes, but also developing educational content to help people understand how to recognize abuse, how to respond to it, and to ultimately report it. And, you know, we are we sit in a really unique spot because we are the, we were the first organization of its kind in the world, certainly the first in the in the United States, and we're built um, with with the with the notion to really put athletes' well-being first. Um, and when you think about the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic movement in which we serve, there's about 11 to 14 million people that fall into that category, which is a lot of people. So when I think about our stakeholders. It's not just athletes, right? Both young and old. Um, it is also the coaches that they that they interact with each and every day. It's doctors, it's medical professionals, it's their parents, it's those folks who are making the policy, sitting at the top. Um, you know, all the administrators and everyone in between that floats in and out of sport. And for us, you know, our first priority, of course, is going to be athletes, right? That's our that number one priority, top of our of the list when it comes to stakeholders. And so making sure that they have the tools and resources they need, but also the trust that they need in order to come to us should they experience a form of abuse um, and want, say, sports um, assistance in trying to resolve it. But when I think about like my daily, right, in the in the daily and the in in of my of my team, you know, we're also dealing not only with the, the athletes and, and people involved with sport, but we're also dealing with the general public. Um, I spend a lot of my time actually here in D.C. Uh, dealing with co congressional representatives um, and you know anybody else who kind of touches sport and. Every one of them wants something different, right? Um, but you know, you've heard the saying: you can you can't be something to everyone, but you can be. I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But when you think about um, about you know, kind of appeasing stakeholders or making sure that they have what they need. Um, for us, it's a balancing act to make sure that, you know, we're always putting athletes first, but also thinking about the implications that it may have on the other people that are impacted by our actions and by sport each and every day, not only in the United States, but also globally. Yeah, when I think about, you know, what you all do as a fairly new organization, you know, you mentioned you were, um, you know, created after you know, there was a lot of news coverage of, of terrible things happening. And probably for most people, they never thought this was a problem, <laughs> you know, probably came as a bit of a slap in the face. And um, uh, you all are there to, you know, address the concerns that are out there, you know, and but also to change the culture to, you know, stem this type of abuse from happening in the first place. And you mentioned trust. How do you build trust when you're coming in um, at this point where people have had this wake up call that, you know, maybe there's a problem out there that they didn't even think about before. And then to establish yourselves as a trusted organization being so new that can help address this problem, particularly for a victim. Yeah. Building trust is hard. Um, and for us, you know, when we came in, we entered in, in the space at a time where, um, particularly athletes didn't trust anyone, right. And rightly so. 
right? They had been wronged by their coaches, by people in, in positions of power and authority, by their entire governing bodies. And so when we opened, it was an uphill battle for us because, you know, we were really closely connected in people's minds to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the governing bodies that, you know, that had done some pretty shady things leading up to that point. And so for us, you know, we had to do a couple of things. And it was one, you know, just recognize the space that we were in and that it wasn't going to be a flip the switch. People are automatically going to come to us just because we have the the name U.S. Center for Safe Sport, right? We needed to build that trust. And, and, and we did that through a couple of a couple of ways. I mean, one, it was being just very open, right? Helping people understand that day one, we were building an organization that was meant to be, to stand the test of time. And so, you know, we needed some time and patience also, right, to be able to build up an organization that could be trusted for years to come. Um, but it was also in the the quality of our work. And, you know, people had to see that when they came to the Center for State Sport that they were getting results and that it wasn't, um, it wasn't taking them backwards. We weren't um, putting their, their needs or their feelings aside, but that, that we really truly cared. And we struggled with, with that. We struggled over, over the years and in, in getting athletes in particular to trust us because we've had missteps as a, as an organization early on. And we've also, we've had to rebuild trust and then rebuild it again and then rebuild it a third time. Right. Um, and I think when you, when you think about building trust, it is a constant continuum and, uh, you know, you also have to be able to really own when mistakes have been made um, and then be really transparent about how you're going about fixing things in order to build and regain trust with communities. Um, because trust is really easy to lose, um, but so very hard to, to to build and to keep. Yeah, I think someone told me once, trust is kind of like a balloon. You know, it takes a lot of effort to blow it up and just, you know, one little thing can pop that balloon and you're back at square one. And um, I think especially when you're talking about issues that just are are just so, you know, emotional and so damaging that that makes it even more difficult to build that trust. And so I wonder if you could share some of the things that you're doing to to change the culture um, so that, you know, this this work is not even needed at the same level, right? So that you're, you know, you mentioned addressing the problem before it becomes an issue. And um, I'd just love to hear some of the successes that you've you've had in that area as you've established this brand and established trust with your stakeholders? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that has worked pretty well, um, particularly when I'm thinking about building trust, because it wasn't, it's not just trust, right, within um, people looking inside. It is the people who are doing the work every day, right? They also have to trust that the decisions that I make, the decisions that my leadership team makes are the right ones for the organization. Um, and so keeping my team, which has grown from what I think when we opened, we had four people. We've now got about 130. Um, but keeping all of the team um, just plugged into what we're doing and why is a really big piece of that. And so making sure that we continually post um, open forums, um, provide updates on really critical um, details of what we're doing, but also giving them access to me um, in, in 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 ways that are that go beyond like a general town hall meeting, right? So, you know, one of the things that I did when I first started was to make sure that everyone understood that I had an open door. Um, and that means that if you want to pop into a Teams at that time, you get to pop into my office. 
Um, and I will always take time for the team to hear out their concerns um, and their ideas and suggestions because they had many of them. And I took that approach with the governing bodies as well. Um, and so, you know, one of the one of the 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 issues that we had early on was that they just didn't see enough of us, right? Um, which was understandable because we had a lot of work going on. Um, and so we needed to take time to really have open and honest conversations with governing bodies, but also being able to open up those conversations to athlete groups um, and the general public. So if a parent calls me and wants to talk about an outcome of their of their case, I make time to make sure I listen to it. Um, now, you know, g- granted, we've gotten over what fifteen thousand or twenty two thousand reports since we have um, opened our doors. Um, so taking twenty two thousand phone calls is you know, almost impossible. Um, but when they do call, to make sure that they feel heard and feel seen, because otherwise it, people think that things go into a black hole and that we are an organization that's not to be trusted, and that's just not the case. You have some personal experience uh, taking those types of phone calls, uh, difficult phone calls, don't you? Yeah. You know, when I first started at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, um, I uh, was on their 24-hour hotline. Uh, I had the worst, the worst uh, schedule uh, available, which was 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Um, but on those eight hours every day, um, I had a chance to to talk to to parents that who were were calling me at their lowest, right? Their kids were missing, um, and or there there were images that were had popped up online of, of their children, and they needed someone to talk to. They needed someone to go to, and they needed someone to give answers. Um, so you know, I had some experience there and just dealing with really sensitive topics. But I think back to when I was in college, um, and I also worked on I, I did collections for a for a bank. Um, and I also got, because of that, yeah, I know, right. <laughs> Did a little bit of everything, but you know, in that people yelled at me all day long because who wants to get a phone call from a collection agency? Um, but it also helped me just keep my, um, just my even keel and, and tone when talking to people and understand that you don't know where people are coming from. You don't know what they've been going through when you pick up that phone. Um, and so to be able to sort of connect with them, um, and to also be able to um, just talk them down a little bit sometimes is, is super helpful uh, because it can get stressful and, and sport is just full of emotion. I mean, turn on any game of any sport and any season and you'll see just the passion that um, that fans come with. And and I think that they bring that same passion when they're calling this center for safe sport. Yeah. You know, this issue obviously has been in the news a lot and your organization finds itself in the news as a result of that. And, you know, you have people when that happens on both sides, everybody has opinions about what you can do differently or better. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how you pay attention to some of the positive things like the word of mouth where people are talking about, you know, your prevention efforts and your program and, and that you know it's working. And then at the same time, how to know when to respond when someone does have criticism or um, feedback and, you know, how to filter that out from the noise. Yeah, it's hard to balance it sometimes, you know, um, because, you know, we get a, a lot of criticism um, and it comes from all all areas and all sides. Um, you know, no one is ever really happy that they have to call us in the first place because of the sensitive issues that we deal with. Um, and so, you know, we do get a lot of criticism. And it's it's important to balance that out and to remember that, you know, we are really making a positive influence 
um, not only in individual athletes' lives, but also in the overall culture of of sport. And so when we're able to kind of lean into, you know, positive feedback from from parents who've gone through our process um, or from survivors who, you know, thank us for being an outlet for them to be able to to finally get some answers and some resolution, you know, that that really puffs us up, right? But then being able to take all of those learnings, all of the feedback, positive or negative, um, and put that into the the prevention education work, I think is really important for us um, because that is where we really want to be able to spend most of our time eventually, right? Helping people prevent that. And so being able to get that feedback and funneling it into education content is really important. But also, you know, sometimes you just got to take it. You got to take the feedback you get. Um, some of it works, some of it doesn't. Um, and I think as leaders, you have to be able to distill between what is um, what is going to help serve you, or, and then what is just people venting? Um, and sometimes there's a little bit of both, and and people need both of those things. Um, but that's probably been one of the things I think um, as CEO here is like you have to be able to um, to hear that feedback, understand that it's typically not personal, um, even though it may be very heated and passionate. Um, but to be able to kind of take what you can out of every one of those conversations and turn it into something that's helpful and useful for the organization. Have you learned any techniques that other leaders could benefit from in terms of depersonalizing the feedback? Because, you know, you shared way back doing collections calls and getting that to to now getting really important feedback. But I think a lot of leaders, you know, that can be a struggle. And I just wonder if um, how you have been able to you know, to, to depersonalize it, as you said. Yeah. And I don't know if it's all that healthy, but I am excellent at compartmentalizing things. Um, and I think this is just a skill that I've had for, for many years where I can set aside um, things that kind of come in so that they don't hit me emotionally. Because, you know, there are, we deal with a lot of really hard stuff. Um, and if you get it, when, when you hear it every single day, and you read every report or every story, it will weigh on you and it will certainly begin to impact mental health. I think it's impossible to do this job without feeling that. Um, and so I think part of it is to, again, you know, take the pieces that you can um, and start to rationalize them, right? So that it's not overly emotional that I can't do my job, but also not so robotic, right? That I become um, just immune to people's pain and suffering because, I don't think that serves anyone, and, and I don't I don't know who could do that. Um, the other piece, you know, is you got to be able to take care of yourself, right, and take care of your team. And and for me, what I learned many years ago was that how I show up, how I'm feeling, how I react to a certain phone call or a certain news article, um, and then my reaction to that to the team or to or publicly impacts them more than I ever would have realized. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's also just having the back of my mind, which I guess is an added stressor, right? But in the back of my mind that my reaction, um, internal or not, is going to, it might impact the team just as much as the action itself. Um, and so always keeping that in mind. Um, and so for me, um, being able to kind of put those in places in my brain to be able to continue the work is super important. And just figuring out how to have those other outlets. Personally, I have begun boxing um, and that really helps get all the anger out. <laughs> it's good to get that frustration out. I do that in the mornings and 
Then I'm zen for the rest of the day. <laughs> we won't ask who you picture when you're hitting that. Punching <laughs> back. Uh, how, you know, you mentioned kind of thinking about your team, like there's a news article or something difficult out there. And how do you show up for your internal team in those moments? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's important for for my team to understand that I take every one of them seriously. Um, and uh, it's also important for them to know that what they may read um, is not always fact. Um, and also that we have a lot of things going on in the background to correct records and things like that. But, you know, we're put in a really awkward position sometimes because we can't really respond, right? Um, you know, there are, we're, we are not going to, we, we won't put ourselves or the people that we serve in a position to, um, to share their information publicly. Um, and, you know, it, that might be the one thing that the media needs to know in order to, to exonerate the Center for State Sport. But for us, that's less important, right? It's about making sure that we protect the people that we serve every day. Um, and so making sure that the team remembers that, um, because it can be very personal. Not everybody has the ability to kind of put it in a box and keep it moving. Um, it, it hits my team very hard, particularly those who are on the investigation side of things, right? Whose whose work is maybe critical, maybe critical um, um, to to a to an article, or if um, you know someone has something negative to say about an educational product that released, it's it's personal to them because they put their heart and soul in it. Um, so I think it's one about just acknowledging that and then keeping them focused on what we're there to do, and that is to make sports safer. And everyone in my organization feels that and they're there for the right reasons. And sometimes they need a pep talk, right, to, to make sure that we keep focused, um, but also just acknowledging that it's hard and sometimes they just need a break. Um, and so we try to prioritize wellness as an organization as well, um, because, you know, the secondary trauma of having to relive some of these things with the victims, um, with witnesses, can be very damaging. And we want to make sure we take care of them just like we take care of the athletes who give us a call. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful message for leaders, Juris, because any leader who's faced some sort of external criticism, it's easy for that to kind of become a, a dominant force over a period of time, you know, and the, the need to respond and defend ourselves. And, um, you know, what I'm hearing from you is, Sometimes, you, you know, you can, sometimes you can't, but rather than just focusing on what's my external response, thinking about what do you need to do internally for yourself and for your team and to remind folks of the importance of the work and the values and why that external response may not even be possible because it would compromise the values that you have as an organization. And to me, it's just that's such a good reminder for leaders. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's something that it's it's easy to get mired in, right? It's easy to take everything personally, um, but if I did that, um, I wouldn't be able to get to the real work, right? And that would be doing a disservice to the organization and to the millions of people who count on us. And so sometimes you just got to push through, um, and it's hard, um, but you know I think it's worth it. Well. To sort of shift to maybe a lighter note, it's it's an exciting year for sports with the Olympic and Paralympic Games coming up in Paris. And I wonder how are you using this moment to connect with and empower athletes and, you know, even connect with the public when there's going to be such a focus on um, on those games? Yeah, we are so excited to support Team USA this year. And this will be the first time that the Center for Safe Sport will um, have a real presence and, and be 
uh, in Paris um, with athletes. So it's super exciting for us. Um, and it's also just one more thing to I think to motivate my team, right? To own what we do because this is the big show, right? Um, and so for us, you know, it's it's not only an opportunity to motivate my team, but it's also it's an opportunity for us to remind uh, the public that we are we are part of the Olympic and Paralympic movement. Um, we help support athletes in a different way, right? We're not helping with team conditioning. We're not helping them get faster. We're not helping them, you know, with medical stuff, but we are helping them in a different way and that we are there to support just as any other organization does. And so one of the big things that we'll be we'll be focusing on is one, making sure athletes know, um, you know, what is there available for them at the games. Um, it's super important that athletes, particularly competing at this very high level, um, that they feel safe and that they feel their well-being is taken care of. So there are lots of organizations, the USOPC, the IOC, um, individual countries are really focusing heavily on mental health and support, which is exciting. Um, and we'll be there to, to be able to help them understand, um, you know, what um, if if they if they need additional support during um, during games or after games, uh, if they'd like to make report, if they see something that's just not quite right. Um, we also will be providing training to all of the um, the volunteers on the ground that will be interacting with Team USA, which is super exciting for us because we want to make sure that anybody interacting with the athletes understands um, what um, safety measures and protocols we have in place as well to keep them safe. Um, and so we want to be able to share that, but also just use this opportunity to get our message out that we are here to support athletes in general. Um, I think the nation, the world really is going to be focusing on um, the games over a period of six weeks, and we're going to be doing the same thing. And so it's a great opportunity to remind the public that one, yes, we are here to, to support athletes in their time of need, but we also are really focused on prevention education and we need the whole world to watch this. We need the whole world to focus on this because there is so much overlap between our athletes and other countries' athletes, whether they're training or going to the games, that everyone who is interacting with an athlete should understand what safeguarding and what safe sport looks like. Um, and this is an opportunity for the United States to really show what we've been doing for the last seven years to the world. Um, and it is really exciting for us just to be, even play a small part in this, which is super exciting. Well, and you mentioned, you know, showcasing what you're doing to the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think it bears repeating that, you know, this is a first of its kind. I mean, we're the first country, the United States is the first country to have um, a center for safe sport, but other countries are following your lead. And I know you engage with other countries. They look to you for expertise. I wonder if you could share some of the, the lessons you share with them, things that you've learned over the last seven years as this organization has built up to be so large and effective. Yeah, you know, every country starts somewhere differently. Um, some of them focus on one or all of everything everything that we focus on. Um, you know, but I think that the biggest lesson um, that we've been able to share is just how to even just get the ball rolling. You know, um, unfortunately, you know, the Center for State Sport was open in the wake of something terrible. Um, and we would hope that other countries don't wait, right, for something like that to happen before they take action to really focus on prevention. Um, and so really helping other countries understand and recognize that just because they haven't had 
a major issue that has been disclosed, right, uh, in their country with their athletes, that doesn't mean that that gives them an opportunity to just sit and wait until it does, um, because we've seen how that how that happens. And so I think that's certainly the first lesson. The second is that you gotta you have to take time, right, and really understanding like what the needs are of your athletes in your country, but also recognizing that there are lots of stakeholders that are at play here, um, and that every country, every sport. Um, um, is going to likely need something different. Um, we've had the flexibility to um, to be able to provide, you know, educational content, uh, policies and procedures, investigation, investigative practices for fifty plus states or fifty plus countries, rather. And having to take that on has also taught us, you know, the value of importance of working with law enforcement early and often, right? Helping them understand that part, the value of creating really strong or um, relationship with international bodies, because, you know, there's going to come a time where you have to be able to share information. And so for us, um, it's about sharing what we've learned, but also some of the things that we had as missteps, Right, um, and and so that we that other countries don't repeat some of the mistakes that we made um, as we were just starting out. I mean, of course, funding was always an issue. Um, appearance of of uh, of independence was an issue early on, um, and then also engagement of athletes. You know, we started that too late, um, and so you know we could have, we could be so much further along if we had done that on day 1 right and so really helping other countries not only see the successes that we've had but also help them understand where we had our own missteps so that they don't have to repeat what we are with what we with the very hard lesson that we've already learned can you share more about engagement with athletes and and what you've learned from that experience because that seems like a really great lesson that you're bringing to others that are just getting started yeah you know when we when we first started out um we were really small and we really needed to to get investigations up and running. And so that's where our time and our focus was. Um, and we didn't spend a lot of time talking with athletes ahead of our opening to understand like what they would want to see out of a center for safe sport. And so we started doing that much later. And I think if we had learned that earlier, we probably would have been a better, a little bit better off. But also as part of our just art of our ongoing growth, right? As an organization. Uh, making sure that we build in athlete feedback to every part of what we do. So in bringing them in when it comes to development of educational content, helping them provide or allowing them to provide, provide feedback on investigative um, practices, right? And what they would like to see from a trauma-informed perspective, understanding how, when, and where they like to be communicated with. Um, that is super important. And for us, you know, as we learn more about that, we're able to meet athletes where they are. Um, and so, and to become an organization that is not just this, you know, scary organization that is investigating crime sometimes, right? But also an organization that is meant to really build up culture change and, and really hand in hand with athletes. And I think that part has been um, kind of eye-opening for me as a CEO and for our organization, um, because there were so many things that, you know, when you're starting up a nonprofit, you're starting a new organization, you're running. Um, and sometimes you run so fast, you miss things. And so now we've had an opportunity to slow down a little bit um, and kind of assess where we could use more support and particularly and, and influence, right, from athletes. Because, you know, even though we serve 11 to 14 million people um, throughout this movement, 
small communities, you know, people talk. Um, and if we can get an athletes to understand our process, if we can help athletes understand how we work and why, continuing to build that trust, um, that only um, strengthens us as an organization and our relationships with athletes. And that's that's something that we will continue to focus on and, and frankly is a, a large part of our um, our strategic plan moving forward. Yeah, I think that's such a great lesson, you know, to, to yeah, anytime you even think you're getting enough feedback from your stakeholders, we will probably can do it more, right? Yeah, we're not doing it enough, <laughs> but, you know, there's more to do there. I know you've been able to um, even just see kind of out in the, the marketplace, as it were, what's happening and, and see conversations that sort of show that people are, you know, sharing what you all are doing. One, if I remember right, is... Um, the equestrian um, community, and I wonder if you could just speak to that as one of the examples of kind of how you know your your message is getting out there. Yeah, you know, the, the equestrian community um, was was very vocal. Um, it remains to be very vocal, but when we first started, they were probably one of our um, biggest critics, um, and for a lot of good reasons, right? One, I think there wasn't a lack there was a lack of understanding of of how we worked. Um, and oftentimes when we, until this day, like when we complete investigations, people always want more information than, than what's given to them. And so they start to fill in their own blanks. Um, and so the equestrian community was demanding answers. Um, they felt that we were, um, uh, that we were, um, uh, singling them out, right, for uh, in many communities. And they let us know about that and they let their members know about that. And so, you know, we slowly started engaging with them um, one one on one, working with their national governing body, um, but also um, hearing from athletes who had gone through our process to better understand how we could work with that community. We also did a lot of work around around marketing and communications directly to them, identifying who the reporters were in um, in those communities and helping them. Um, um, understand and kind of get a look into, you know, what the center was and so that they could begin to report out more factual information. And as the organization began to embrace safe sport, as um, we began to weed out bad actors in the equestrian community and that became more public, the tide started to change. Um, and, you know, I would go to these, these message boards and they would be brutal. <laughs> um, I mean, just Sometimes it was, you know, attacks on the organization, personal attacks. It was pretty terrible. Um, but what we started to see was that people from the community started to speak up and said, no, this is not what the issue is. Here's what our issue is. And here's how we're going to fix it as a community. And we got more and more voices. Uh, they became louder and louder and started to really shift the tides in that entire community. Now, there's certainly still lots of work to be done. Right in all in all sports, um, but I think that what we have been able to do, and it, and it certainly wasn't on our own, right? It was a, a groundswell of support and just knowledge sharing. I think from the equestrian community that really really pushed us forward. Yeah, it just sounds like the the listening and the conversations are just one important way to engage the stakeholders. And I was also thinking about the kind of how you're spreading the lessons internationally. And I know you all have done a lot of research and that's an important way to, you know, understand what works and then convey that out. And I wondered if you could just share um, what you all have found in your research that you're that you're sharing with your stakeholders. 
Yeah. So, you know, we, we're, we're sitting on a lot of data, right? I mean, we've taken in so many reports over the years. And so it's really helped us understand what the issues are in individual sport communities, but also, you know, what, um, what we need to do as far as preventing abuse. Um, so that's been, is a largely critical and that again, it gets poured into our own educational content. But one of the things that we really are focusing on is, you know, what the athlete experience is. Um, and so we certainly hear a lot from athletes that go through our process, but we really want to know more about those that don't. Um, and so a few years ago, we actually uh, launched our first culture and climate survey to get a better understanding of athlete experiences throughout all sport. And we got a, a fairly good response um, from, from athletes of all ages um, who, um, who had participated in sport at, you know, in, at various times of their lives. And, you know, I think one of the most shocking things that we found was that in, you know, 94% of the athletes that reported um, experiencing some sort of abuse, um, yeah, in some sort of abuse, 94% of them didn't, didn't report it. Mm. Right. And so we, 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 we uncovered and we kind of, we kind of knew this right anecdotally, but we uncovered just some more, you know, data to support that athletes weren't coming forward and they were, weren't coming forward for a number of reasons. You know, they feared retribution. They were scared. They weren't ready. Um, they didn't think people would believe them. Right. They thought it might impact their, their career moving forward. And so, you know, knowing that sort of information is really helpful to us as not only as we go out and talk to athletes one-on-one, -on -one, right, and as um, as communities, but also as we build educational content. And so this year, we just launched a follow-up survey to understand if that's changed, right? And so to see if the things that we have put in place, the things that governing bodies have put in place are starting to, to move that, right? To, because what we want is if there is, if people do experience abuse, we want them to report. But we recognize that reporting sexual abuse is hard for everybody involved. Um, and so, you know, we also want to just understand, like, if there are barriers to that, you know, what can we as an organization do to, to, to knock some of those down, right? And so every year we learn a little bit more, but I think that was probably the most startling um, and the one that we really kind of dug into because we don't want people to feel that they that they can't report um, because what that does is ultimately um, allows, you know, in many cases for abuse to keep going. Um, and we and at the end of the day, we want people to be safe. And so whatever we can do to one, give people confidence to be able to report to us, um, but also break down those barriers that prevent them from doing that or for their friends from doing that is really critical to our work. Yeah, and I suppose that's why you have so many efforts now to reach um, younger athletes, you know, to reach kids, to make sure that they understand, you know, what's right and wrong in this case so that they um, can speak up and that they're more comfortable reporting it when something happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, engaging um, young athletes is critical, right? Um, you know, one of the things we did uh, early on was develop a suite of policies that every governing body is required to adhere to. And those have been adopted by, you know, hundreds of organizations throughout the country. And part of that is like helping people understand like what is okay and what's not. And so to recognize some of those red flags, right, in pol and when people are breaking policies, because we know that if you're bending rules and then, then you start to break rules, um, that is typically where abuse starts to happen. And if we can get people to understand that and then report that behavior first, 
right, before it gets to to a place where people are being abused, then we can really start to move the needle um, when it comes to prevention. Um, as you make decisions as a leader, I wonder if you could just share some of the values that you really hold up and rely on. Um, because you have a lot of, you know, you're dealing with a lot going on here and, and uh, as you have at your previous organizations as well. Yeah, you know, I think what I was thinking about preparing for this interview, like immediately my my head went to integrity, right? It's probably the number one value. And integrity is a, a value that is part of our core values at the Center for Safe Sport, but also a personal value as well. Um, because, you know, this job and this work and this world really tests you. Right. Um, and there are opportunities to cut corners. There are opportunities to look the other way. There are opportunities to maybe, you know, go easy on people. Right. Um, but we don't we don't take those shortcuts. We don't cut those corners. Um, and I think as a leader, it's important to have the highest level of integrity when you're making decisions, not only for the work that we do, but also as an example and model for the rest of the team. Um, because I rely on, you know, 100 plus people every day to show up and do their jobs the best that they can and have the best um, the best intentions, but also um, the highest levels of integrity and support that we can offer. And I think if if you can't model that, then that's a problem. Right. Um, and particularly as an organization that was stood up to demand accountability, um, that's really, really important. Um, you know, and I think the the one of the other things that I was thinking about um, that just kind of drives me is just also the um, accountability in itself, right? Just be, being responsible for for actions, and as CEO, as leaders, like you got to also be responsible for other people's actions, <laughs> um, and then being able to take that um, and really. Um, help that drive, you know, future decision-making, right? Because we all don't get it right all the time. Um, the people who work for me are humans. <laughs> you know, we make mistakes, um, we mess up, um, but accepting that sometimes and just moving on, right? Um, figuring out how we can do better um, and then really making sure that that's a value that I that only instill for myself and the work that I do every day, but also driving that with the team. Um, because it's a collective. Um, and I think that, you know, the team shows up well, um, particularly in those areas, because we know how how much it means, because every case, every person we talk to, um, you know, it's not a number, it's not um, just a, an allegation of abuse that comes in, it's a human being and it impacts people's lives. And we owe it to people to have it at the very top of our minds at all times. Well, that accountability piece is, you know, something that underpins everything you all do, right? Because the whole idea that um, our system, you know, that young people are involved in sport and we want to make sure that they're safe, you know, the, the system has some level of accountability, even if there's an individual whose actions, um, you know, were, you know, made a, <laughs> you know, that there was a, a case of something happening that shouldn't have happened, right? That we need to create a system that has a culture that will, prevent that from happening in the future. And that's such a tough thing to do. I mean, it's a tough thing to, um, but it's so important. And you've seen such an influx of reports, which really is evidence that folks are more comfortable coming forward and and sharing to change that culture. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's sometimes it's a little heartbreaking, right? Because we get so many reports in. Um, but, you know, the way that I look at it is that means that those are, those are people who are finally taking taking the leap 
right, to to make a report um, or to for themselves or on or or on behalf of someone else, um, and that takes courage and that takes resolve. Um, and so, you know, I think we're going to probably see more reports as we as the years go on. Um, but it is, I think, a testament of the work that we're doing. Um, and also it's it's a testament to the level of understanding that people in this country have now around abuse in sport and being able to recognize that early um, and be able to and actually finally have a place to report it. So uh, it certainly keeps us busy. Um, but you know, I, I don't think it happened any, any other way. Yeah. And as we wrap up, I wondered if you could just tell us what can someone do if they want to learn more about how to spot and help prevent abuse in sport? Sure. I mean, the first thing is, you know, stop by our website, um, uscenterforstatesport.org. And we have a ton of resources that are available that focus on, um, prevention and recognizing, uh, abuse, but also for different audiences. So if you're a parent um, and you want to have a conversation with your child and you're signing them up for, you know, a, so- a new soccer club, or maybe they're starting gymnastics for the first time, um, you want to make sure that um, they understand also like what the expectations are, no matter their age. Um, it's also a great place to, to stop by as parents to have some questions to ask for new coaches that you're hiring, right? You want to make sure that the, the club or organization that you're signing your kids up for um, you know, of course, does background checks, but also has policies in place to protect your children, that they're state sport trained, um, and that they have a reporting mechanism in place. Uh, I'd also recommend um, dropping by our centralized disciplinary database. Um, and th- that's where we list more than 2,000 names of individuals who we have banned from sport. Um, and so certainly a resource to the public that I encourage everyone to take a look at. Well, thank you so much. You know, it's not it's not an easy task, uh, what you're doing. I mean, I think any leader faces a lot of um, challenges, but in particular, from your experience, taking super difficult calls at the uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children to now in your role as you're pioneering the work of safe sport and how that is, you know, the message and the the research and the expertise is getting out around the world to make sport safer for everyone, but particularly you know, the the youngest um, athletes. Um, it's a bold uh, uh, challenge to influence stakeholders as various as the policymakers down to athletes in your family. And I just really appreciate you sharing some pearls of wisdom with us today, Juris Colon. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.